0: Coming up next, the Flintstones meet the Jetsons. Uh Uh-oh, I smell another cheap crossover. Unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore.
1: The straw runs down his almond lake, under the carpet, out to the cake. A secret party tonight at Point Loma. Hi, and thanks for downloading a very special
2: episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your moderator for today, unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer. Joining me, as always, is assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in lovely. Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan that's P. Me. Yep. Hi, how Nathan Gilmore? How, how's it going? I'm doing well, man. Uh, also joining us is graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, Mr. David Grubbsy Grubbs. Can I call you Grubbsy, David?
3: Uh, f- probably about a third of the people that I know do. So yeah, that's <laughs> cool.
2: Makes me think of Wind in the Willows.
3: Yeah. Okay, and the reason that's even
2: cooler. And the reason this is a very special episode is that the Christian Humanist Podcast has its first ever guest. It's our dear, 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 dear friend, Dr. Chris Geertz, who's an associate professor of history at Bethel University in Saint Paul, Minnesota. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris.
4: My pleasure. I'm actually in lovely Arden Hills, Minnesota, but we put Saint Paul in the address because no one knows where Arden Hills is.
2: <laughs> uh, lovely Arden Hills, Minnesota. we'll, we'll make yeah. sure we, we catch that for the West Coast feed. Is our, that uh, with
3: the Forest of Arden? Our, <laughs> I don't know. Our,
2: li- our listeners might know Chris from the CWC, the Radio Show podcast, although they're not going to know him if they've only been listening to that show this semester, because Chris is on um, what do you call it, sabbatical or furlough?
4: Uh, it's, well, furlough makes more sense, but sabbatical. Um, yeah, I, I I'm on sabbatical, and I, I have to say I haven't done any podcasting now for about four months, so I'm really rusty. Um, so do this you is feel just feel like you're cheating
2: on Sam Mulberry with us. I do, a little bit, except that
4: he suggested this. So if I am, it's his own fault. He played some weird facilitating role. Well, yeah. speaking uh, of
2: him, he sent us an email late last night with a little bit of information on you that I'm now going to read. These are some fun Chris Garrett's factoids. Um, he is I the receiving up
4: still, you know. It's, What's that now? It's not, it's not too late for me to hang up. So. Uh,
2: these, these are nice things. Plus, they're oh, from okay. Sam, not from oh, me. No, he great. is the recipient of the 2008-2009 Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. Well, that's true. His Radio Modern Europe podcast is a bit of an internet phenomenon with well over 12,000 downloads of his 11 hour-long episodes. Who are all these people downloading hour-long podcasts on modern European history? No idea. My wife, actually. I think she she, uh, listens to the podcast. (laughs) His portrayal of Martin Luther in the Reformation polka has been seen by over 71,000 YouTube viewers. Some of my finer work, I think. His portrayal of Mr. Peabody in the CWC animated short, CWC Improbable History, Galileo, has been seen by over 39,000 YouTube viewers. I love that one.
4: I love playing a dog. It's it's really easy for some reason. Well, it's a
2: super intelligent talking dog that invented time travel, to be fair. His his St. Augustine rap has been seen by over 12,000 YouTube viewers. That's (laughs) 12,000
4: more than I wish I'd seen it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's over—that's over, that's over 134,000 downloads/slash views. Number says Sam that any of us podcasters/slash vo- uh, bloggers would be happy to have. And finally, he says, more importantly, he is a really great teacher and kind of a hero of uh, Mon, Sam Mulberry. So, not that you're not oh. my hero, too.
4: Oh, my goodness. Well, it's just, okay.
2: Not, not great, I, I intentionally, not by the way,
4: I intentionally didn't listen to your last podcast because I had heard that you'd said, um, someone said obsequious things about me. And I, I knew there's just no, I can live up to anything you guys have said. So <laughs> I'm just going to come in ignorance and, and hope it works out for the best.
0: Well, Chris, I do have to ask. There are actually two versions of the Reformation Polka available on YouTube. Mm. Uh, is yours the cover version, or is the other one the cover version? The cover
4: version.
2: Who, who's yes, the original?
4: Uh, that's a good question. You yeah, have to ask Sam. He's the one who actually posts all that stuff. That's Sam didn't write the song. No, right. the... the song is old. A Lutheran pastor in Iowa wrote it years ago, and he just found it. Um, I forget when we did it, like five years ago.
2: Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. I got to say, we were in church... Um, We were in church on Sunday and we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the Reformation polka was the only thing I could think about. So, congratulations (laughs) for ruining Martin Luther. I ruined it? Sorry. (laughs) Well, the reason we have Chris on today is that our topic is something he knows quite a bit about, not just from personal experience, but from actual scholarly research, imagine that, something uh, the three of us have mostly eschewed. And we're going to be talking about (laughs) Christian colleges, (laughs) and before we ask Chris about his research and his experiences, we're going to be rude and talk amongst ourselves for just a moment, and then we'll we'll come back to Chris. Um, So one starting point that we all had when we started this podcast was the fact that the three of us all attended Christian colleges. Um, Let's assume for a minute that all our listeners haven't yet heard our first episode and briefly discuss our experiences, good and bad, um, at the Christian colleges we attended. And Nathan, let's start with you.
0: All right, well, I attended Milligan College in Johnson City, Tennessee. Its affiliation is with the Christian Churches, Churches of Christ. It's one of those non-denominational denominations you hear tell of. Uh, it was a really good experience for me. I was actually a fairly recent convert for real. Uh, and when I got there, I mean, what, what I remember most is my Bible professor. I took Old and New Testament survey from him, Dr. David L. Matson. Uh, really put in my head this idea that scholarship was not only something not to be feared, but it's actually something that enhanced your ability to read the Scripture, to interpret them, and to teach them when you were serving a congregation. And I remember that very clearly because it was so very different from the horror stories that I had heard coming into you know, what in our tradition gets called the Milligan, or the the Milligan school, the liberal school, uh, which is kind of funny because it's, it's such a right-wing student body. I just have to laugh at the, at the liberal <laughs> thing. Uh, but, you know, the fact that this was not going to be something that I had to resist lest I lose my faith and become a godless atheist, but it's something that actually would enhance my own ministry. David, how about you? I mean, what what do you remember about going into Christian College?
3: Well, I went to Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a um, non-denominational evangelical uh, Bible College that's um, affiliated with Dallas Theological Seminary. Its roots are in the, uh, the sort of Bible College, Bible Institute movement of uh, the, the early 20th century. Um, And uh, it's dispensationalist for those to whom that term is meaningful. Um, I ended up there because uh, my pastor went there and my youth pastor went there and probably half the elders in my non-denominational Bible church went there. Um, Many of my friends who had graduated the year before me from high school, they, they went there. And my sister had expressed interest and I had no idea what else I was going to do with my life. So I went along with her to check the college out and liked it and stayed. <laughs> so um for me it was uh yeah it, going going to a Christian college and particularly going particularly going to Southeastern was something I never really thought about hard because it just seemed kind of a natural thing to do because so many people I had known had done precisely the same
0: thing.
2: Well, great. Um, I went to Toccoa Falls College in northeast Georgia, not too far from Franklin Springs, actually. And uh, it's a major university compared to David's school, I believe. We had about 800 people while I was there. (laughs) Um, It's affiliated with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and I probably mentioned on the first show I'd never heard of this denomination when I first started there, Uh, and I still don't know that much about them. Um, I had had a very mixed experience at TFC, and to this day, I, I can't really tell you why I applied there. It was the only school I applied to. And I'm not really sure why that was either, other than, you know, I'm very, very lazy. Uh, I was excited to get in, but I had a really hard time fitting in there, both because I'm rather prickly in general, which may or may not come across on this podcast, and uh, because it took me a long time to understand the culture there, and I I came very close to transferring, and I ended up being glad that I didn't transfer, uh, because I don't think I would still be a Christian if I hadn't had the faith thrust upon me uh, day after day, as much as I resented that at the time. And um, certainly going to TFC affected the sort of work I do. There's no doubt, for example, that I wouldn't be involved um, in this podcast if I hadn't mm-hmm. attended a, a Christian school. So if nothing else, I'm glad for that. Um, Chris, let's let's move on to you. You're, you're in the opposite direction to some degree as the rest of us. We got our bachelor's degrees, and in Nathan's case his master's degree as well, um, from Christian colleges. And then we were pushed out into the cold, heartless world of the secular academy. Um, but you got <laughs> your education from best I can tell, non-sectarian schools, and now you teach at a Christian university. So uh, why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, you can talk about where you went to undergrad and and your uh, graduate school as well, Um, but I also want to know what attracted you to Bethel and uh, what kind of culture shock, if any, did you experience when you got there?
4: Me moving from the cold, heartless world into the warm bosom of the church—that's true. The, yes. okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me start with a little autobiography. I grew up in the Twin Cities, just kind of east, actually, of where I'm currently sitting in Stillwater, Minnesota. Um, and I grew up. My denomination is fairly small and doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, churches in the South. It's called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I'll talk more about the the background of it, because it has some affinity with Bethel. Um, I remember applying for college I don't think I applied to a single Christian college and apart from North Park which is the Covenant School in Chicago I don't think I knew of any Christian colleges um, I honestly I'd never heard of say Wheaton or Calvin until maybe my sixth year of graduate school um, and yeah that's partly because I went to a private college prep high school and the guidance counselor never would have thought to suggest those places and so I was looking at actually a lot of schools in Virginia because her son went to school out there um, and I think even if I did know, I wouldn't have wanted to because ages 16 to 20 were kind of my crisis of faith years. And I, I probably would not have found it appealing to go to a place like Bethel. Um, so I ended up going to the College of William & Mary in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. So They, I, they rejected department.
2: me in case anybody's uh, keeping score. <laughs>
4: It's it's an elite institution, and uh, my, my dorm actually overlooked the parking lot for Colonial Williamsburg, so the story I like to tell is I'd wake up and see the blacksmith getting out of his Corolla and, and walking off to work. It's, <laughs> it's not it's not a way to go to school. Um, so I, I studied history there, and, and at one point in time, William & Mary was, I guess, an Anglican school. It didn't actually become a state school, I think, until the 20th century, and it still has kind of vestiges of that. Um, but certainly there's... I mean no great sense that was a Christian school. Um, and even though, I went to a Baptist church, um, and I think I went to the Baptist student group once, and that was only because David Letterman was just starting a CBS show, and I wanted to see it, and they had a TV, and I didn't. Um, after that, I went to graduate school at Yale University, um, which, we were talking before the show, at least at one point was a congreg- congregationalist, and even maybe a UCC school, and they and they've dropped whatever kind of notional affiliation they had um, in the last few years. So, uh, yeah, it, it was very much the secular academy. Um, and I have to say that that didn't bother me especially. I didn't think much about it. I'd say I did kind of typical modern, especially Protestant move of compartmentalizing you know, faith and learning. You know, I, I, mean, I attended churches. I was very active in churches. It kind of resolved any kind of serious doubts I had in my teenage years. And you know, I considered myself a Christian, but never thought much about what that implied for doing 20th century diplomatic and European history. Um, I remember actually teaching as a teaching assistant one year in a 20th century Europe class when we were talking about Stalin. And it actually did occur to me kind of in midst of discussion, you know, how can I talk about Stalin and the Soviet Union in the 1930s and not talk about evil or sin? But it just seemed inappropriate, and, and so I kind of squelched that that instinct. Um, so then coming out of Yale, uh, I got my Ph.D. in 2002, um, had kind of a bad first experience with the job market, and so the second time out, I actually did look at some um, evangelical colleges, kind of on the recommendation of some some grad school friends I was going to church with, and applied to a few, got interviewed at a few places, and uh, ended up uh, getting kind of, by an odd set of circumstances, um, uh, hearing about... Uh, the job at Bethel. I actually heard about it before the department chair knew that it was official because my um, mom's cousin teaches physics here. So I, I kind of heard about by email. So coming here, I mean, it was familiar in some senses, um, in that I was, I was obviously from here. Um, I knew people who were here. I had family who were here. Um, one of my parents' best friends in church was a business professor here. So I, I did know a little bit about Bethel, um, and what I've kind of come to find, the reason I think that it made so much sense when I came and interviewed was that it, it comes out of the same kind of Swedish-American pietistic tradition that my denomination does, and I've kind of come back to the covenant church as well. So I mean, in that sense, it, it really feels like home, even though I'm, a, I'm one of those pedo-Baptists that they, they permit around here. Um, <laughs> in, in other ways, though, there was a lot of culture shock. Um, I mean, like I said, I, I had no sense of anything like you know the integration of faith and learning. I had never heard that phrase until I saw the Bethel application and realized I had to write an essay about it. And so I had to start <laughs> thinking about, like I talked about like incarnation in history or something in John chapter 1, um, which was great. And, and I appreciate it, but I was just totally unfamiliar. And I, I to this day, I feel fairly unconfident in talking about it. So I, it, it's slightly funny that you guys considered me an expert on Christian colleges. Um, I, I'd actually say the most uncomfortable um experience i had though was my first semester I, I don't know if i was actually expected to do this or if it was a self-imposed what i saw as a burden but the idea of starting class with prayer every day really i worry
2: about crazy. that every day of my life it's um <laughs> i mean i'm just
4: uncomfortable praying in public to start with and i've I, kind of starting to get over that, but I, I just felt totally inadequate to do it. But I also, there, there was part of me that felt like this is inappropriate. You know, this this has nothing to do with the study of history. Um, and I mean, I, I, I think especially something that pietists, need to be sensitive to if they're going to talk about their own models of education. Pietists are often accused of just kind of adding on piety to education. I mean, it's it's kind of a common criticism by especially reformed scholars of um, Protestant colleges in the 20th century is that you, know, you, you say a prayer and that makes you Christian. I mean, It's, a, I mean, it's kind of a pejorative idea. Um, I mean, since I've grown more comfortable with it, I actually start to consider it a really important part of class. But you know, just culturally, that was a hard thing for me. Just, just the way my students talked. You know, I, the covenant is kind of evangelical, kind of not, and our students tend to be Baptist or fairly conservative Lutheran or or kind of non-denominational megachurch evangelical. So, I mean, the language they use sometimes was was unfamiliar to me.
2: I had a professor who uh, also didn't like to pray in class. Not that I blame him. Uh, and uh he just read the uh collect every day or the collect mm-hmm. i don't i never remember which way to pronounce it um chris you're our guest today so we're going to give you a, a little more time on the soapbox than the three of us usually get <laughs> so uh we'd like to hear about the research you're conducting right now on pietist education and how that fits in with your teaching work and experiences at, at bethel
4: so i guess i'll start autobiographically again and, and when, I, when i came to bethel um what was helpful was faculty development, especially your first year, spends a lot of time on on faith learning integration, and and like most evangelical schools, it, it borrows from a pretty reformed model. You know, it, it starts with Arthur Holmes' idea of a Christian college, and you know, people like George Marsden and, and, and others in that in that model. And so I found that really, really beneficial at first. You know, it forced me to uh, rethink. You know, as the reform would do, um, presuppositions of my discipline and, and and integrating those then with you know theological propositions, and you know I still do that in a lot of respects. But um, kind of within a couple of years, I also found that fairly alien. You know, I, I'm not reformed by upbringing or by tradition or really by theology, and and so I I started to think was you know what other sources are there. Um, I took part in a workshop where we read a book by Douglas and Rhonda Jacobson of Messiah College called. Um, scholarship and Christian faith. And one of the things they try to do is introduce Anabaptist and Anglican and Lutheran and Catholic and others um, uh, approaches to scholarship. Um, but what what struck me was that they didn't talk at all about pietism, even though pietism is one of the main influence on Messiah. And it also struck me that Bethel keeps talking about itself being a pietist college or coming out of a pietist um, background. And a little background here, Bethel is founded by a group called the Baptist General Conference, which is a Swedish Pietist group. Um, so immigrants in the late 19th century. So, so it's part of our heritage, and I think I mean, that that veneer is still there, especially with the older professors. But it's not very well understood. You know, I think if you asked the vast majority of faculty and certainly students here, you know, what does it mean that this is a you know Pietist model of Christian higher education? They'd have no idea. Um, and you know, in some respects, it seems odd to say that Pietism could support education because I think. To a lot of people, pietism sounds very uh, anti-intellectual or even maybe fideist or something. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, maybe, do you want me to talk a little bit about pietism? I, mean, I don't know how familiar even that tradition is. Um, yeah, give
2: us, a, give us a brief introduction to pietism. Okay. Um, So Pietism,
4: usually the story goes back to 17th century Germany, time in the wake of the Thirty Years' War, um, and German, especially Lutheranism, and and guys like a pastor named Philipp Jakob Spener and uh, August Hermann Franke, who um, are kind of put out by the Lutheran scholastics of the time, they're usually called, who tend to emphasize... The uh, Book of Concord, Lutheran Confessions, the Augsburg Confession, the Schmuck-Hald Articles, and, and so the the mark then to the scholastics of a good Lutheran of good Christians, your ability to assent to some kind of propositional faith and so the spainer starting in 1675 with a book called pia desideria or pious wishes he he talks about how this is corrupting the church how it's losing any sense of kind of vitality instead you just get these very erudite pastors who ramble on about theology but you know have no sense of conversion or regeneration don't have much kind of pastoral um, affection for their congregations and, and so it's it tends to emphasize experience it tends to emphasize holy living um, but just kind of by the nature of its critique of what they call dead orthodoxy, it doesn't seem especially intellectual. You know, even though these are university-trained, doctorate-holding people, the pietists actually run the University of Hala, so it, it seems somewhat anti-intellectual. Um, and tends to emphasize instead, you know, the experience of, of new life, of conversion, of rebirth. And it tends to emphasize personal holiness and, and missions and what we call ministries of care and compassion and mercy and things like that. Um, And then, just to take it a little bit further, um, it ends up influencing a lot of different traditions. You know, the Brethren tradition, there are kind of pietist revivals in in Anabaptist communities, Um, Moravians. um, Kind of the Wesleyan movement is kind of a cousin to pietism. But in Hmm. the 19th century, it starts a revival in Sweden and is— about a million Swedes between 1850 and 1930 come to the United States, and a lot of them are pietists and they set up new denominations. So the Baptists are the Baptist General Conference, and then my church, the Evangelical Covenant, are kind of cousins of the Baptists who accept both um, believers and infant baptism and tend to be a little bit more Lutheran in theology. So I mean, that's kind of where I'm personally coming from, and it's where Bethel comes from. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what I've, what I've done really for my research for the last couple of years is try to think, well, how then could we describe a pietist model of higher education? And, and you know, in part, I'm looking at what especially Franco would say, because he was kind of the, the, the head of the uh, University of Hala. um A little bit about Spanier, uh Comanius is the Moravian educator. Um, but then especially looking at the history of Bethel and of the Covenant School that I mentioned in Chicago, which is North Park University. So I, I look at their founders and especially... The, the people I've studied the most that I have an article coming out about are Carl Lundquist, who's the longest-serving president of Bethel from the mid-1950s until the early 1980s, and Carl uh, Olson, who's president at North Park in the late 50s and 1960s. So um, I know you're going to ask about the theories of education a little bit, so I'll just say maybe a couple things that... I kind of find in my own experience more than even in the research, but that the research is kind of reaffirmed or have revealed to me yeah, you know, in terms of what's distinctive about a pietist model. Um, number one would be the idea that for faculty, what we're called to do is, um, I mean, to teach, to do scholarship, but also, I mean, I, I keep thinking of it as a pastoral role. Um, uh, Lundquist says at one point that the most important thing that education can do is is have the impact of one life on another, and he even says that he'd rather have you know Christians who can do that than you know great scholars because that that's ultimately where education um, kind of does what it's supposed to do. So I mean, we spend a lot of time here, and <clears throat> spend a lot of time here um, thinking about you know how do we form. What, we tend to call friendly and helpful relationships with students. Um, I think to a pretty extraordinary degree, students are invited to faculty houses. You know, spend a lot of time in offices. Um, there's a lot of kind of counseling that goes on. So I mean, that, that that's kind of a fuzzy thing to pin down. And I mean, I'd, certainly I'd have one thing I struggle with is that that was not the model given to me in graduate school, and I don't feel like I have any training for it. And I don't think our faculty development does a very good job preparing professors for that. But I, I do think it's it's fairly distinctive. And if you were to ask students. And what was distinctive about Bethel, they would probably talk about a relationship with a professor. Um,
2: Guys, was that your experience? I'm sorry to cut you off, Chris. Yeah, sure. Was that your experience at your colleges as well? Because that was definitely how TFC worked.
4: David,
3: go ahead and take it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I remember going to the college president's house um, for just dinner, Um, the regularly... Uh, the smaller, you know, some of the smaller classes, the professor would just kind of say, hey guys, it's a nice day. Uh, let's go up to the Barnes and Noble and we'll get coffee and we'll sit out on the terrace outside and we'll do class there. Um, the The professors would have lunch in the same lunchroom with the students at the same tables with the students and, and lunch would just be uh, a a big conversation. We knew what our we, we knew our professors' families, we knew their children, uh, you know, they, they made us part of their lives. And so, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd say I was definitely the case at Milligan too. I, you know, I actually started out as a computer science major, um, which obviously didn't pan out. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I remember going over to, you know, Tom Barkus's house, probably three or four times within my first semester, uh, and you know, really being welcomed in by his family, and then, as my um, my undergraduate career progressed, I mean, I really did become a disciple of one professor in particular, Phil Kennison, who taught me my philosophy and theology. and I mean I you know when I think of my undergrad years, that's what I think of. I think of Phil Kennison really pushing me with questions, guiding me when I was wandering, uh, you know, giving me assurance when i was you know fouling up and you know slapping me around when i got complacent so i mean it was definitely that one-on-one connection
2: i um i remember having a conversation with a tfc professor after i left where he was he was complaining that there wasn't enough done about teaching and he says well if we're going to be a research to school they really need to elevate the teaching and i said look TFC is not really, and I assume this goes for most most religious schools. It's not really a research two school. It's a research three school, in that teaching comes second, and what what comes first is really mentoring, because because that's really what 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 they have to offer. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's
4: interesting to hear you guys talk about it because that was you know, that that's obviously. It's very different than my own experience. Um, you know, William & Mary was not a huge school. It had five or 6,000 undergraduates. But I mean, apart from my Russian history prof, I I think he was the only one to invite us to a house. And I, I never had that kind of close relationship. And it, I, I don't know if this is—I mean, it's certainly not unique to, I guess, the Pietist College. It seems pretty broadly true You know, of small colleges generally, but of evangelical schools. Sure. Um, yeah, and I, and yeah. I
0: was chuckling a little bit, Chris, when you talked about Arthur Holmes because, uh, I mean, that book, The Idea of a Christian College, I mean, just— supplies pretty much the totality of our of, of our vocabulary here at manual for talking about what we do mm-hmm. so I clearly I need when to I, read this book yeah, yeah I it's, mean, it, it, it's one of those things you yeah. know, <laughs> I, until I read the book which I didn't do until over Christmas break uh, you know I thought that It was this sort of, you know, insider's vocabulary that Emmanuel professors (laughs) shared with each other. And then I read the book and I said, oh, okay, I I get it now.
2: So, David, this is the sort of thing we need to read before we apply for jobs at Christian schools and just mimic its vocabulary, clearly.
3: Very clearly, yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, David, if you want to come down to
0: my office, I've got a copy in my hand right now, so. And he'll hit you in the head with it. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, and, and then you can use it in your interview and impress the heck out of people. So
2: <laughs> one of the things the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast uh, shares with our friends over at the CWC is an interest in great books education. And I guess in the CWC's case, it's it's more than an interest, isn't it? It's a uh, it's an academic and professional commitment. It's a great books education. But I'd like you to go around to our virtual table um, now and talk about the places we see where Christian education intersects with that great books education, either in theory or in practice. Um, so, David, let's start with you.
3: I guess probably uh, my, my first encounter in uh, in grad school with the need for a focus on great books education was in that Spencer class. Um, we've uh, we, we mentioned it in our very first episode. I'll bring it up again. Um, took a, 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 a seminar on Spencer's *Fairy Queen*. And half the class was spent simply explicating Greco-Roman mythological illusions and Christian biblical illusions. Um, there, it's, it seemed like so much time was being spent in simply being in in simply informing the class what uh, what was being alluded to, what the context of knowledge was. And as someone who went into the class knowing the Bible, knowing Ovid, knowing Homer, knowing Virgil, I had just assumed that people were just kind of reading through there, picking those things up, and that we were going to talk about, I don't know, Elizabethan politics or, or uh,
0: so- something else. Now, and, this is uh, the class you and I were in together, right, David?
3: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, the one that we were Bible guys in. Yeah. And, <laughs> I
2: think, yeah. I and, think we've all had that experience of being the Bible guy.
3: Well, and and I, I guess the 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 thing that I came out of that class uh, feeling was how much li- how much of especially of the rena- of Renaissance lit and then medieval lit before that that is missed by not having. Um, not having roots in the classics.
0: Right, and I, and I ought to point out, I mean, just to add to what David said, this is a room full of Ph.D. students, very yes. bright people, you know, a lot of whom are published scholars at this point, uh, but it's true, I mean, they kept kicking it over, you know, either, either to David's side of the table or to mine uh, whenever mythological or biblical things came up.
2: I, You know, yeah. I had the same experience when I took that Emerson class because I had to explain what Unitarianism was.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: yeah. And uh, I guess uh, it, it's, it's and you and you and we've talked about this before. Um, I guess I think in our in our first episode, which I re-listened to again because my wife my wife was has has been listening to him. Um, that uh, that our our discipline has kind of spun off into these very narrow fields of study, and because of that, has missed. Um, I guess the the great books that formed the core of so much commons, common speech, common language, common illusion around which at least, you know, what I study is built. I mean, you can't do Anglo-Saxonist studies without knowing what came before it. The the big books that kind of fill the horizon, you can't do Chaucer, you can't do, you know, anything in the Renaissance without knowing that stuff. And uh, to, to me, you know, the, the great books is absolutely necessary, but the Bible is also a great book and in in that in that great book sense and so i th- I think that's one of the places where where the christian Christian side of education intersects with the great books side is because of how 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 big a role um, Christianity and the literature of Christianity, not just the Bible but also augustine and you know other thinkers in the church uh are part of part of that core that's i I think is just necessary anyway
0: well i I should say that uh first of all michael i i noted that you stole my thunder after i suggested a an episode on great books and theory last week you jumped the gun on me so don't think that (laughs) slipped by me (laughs) wait how did i what did i do Oh, because you brought up great books here, and, you know, last week you said, oh, let's not do great books just yet. (laughs) But at any rate... How
2: dare you, Nathan? How (laughs) dare you?
3: (laughs) Hey, uh, this is is a big enough topic. We can come back to it. I'm just saying, well, I'm
0: planning to in two weeks. I've actually got notes going already for this episode. But at any rate... uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, tune in, folks. Maybe Nathan and I will finally go at it. (laughs)
0: Uh, But at any rate, you know, at my own school at Milligan, uh, we had what we called the humanities program. Uh, It was very reminiscent of what I hear about, you know, on the CWC radio show, uh, except it was four semesters long, 24 credit hours. Uh, It was a beast of the class. It it filled up almost half of the core requirements for graduating from Milligan. Uh, And it was just a wonderful course of study because we did basically a diachronic look at the humane disciplines you know we were doing I mean just for example the second unit in the first semester of humanities uh, we were doing Thucydides and Herodotus on history we were doing Greek tragedy we were doing uh, Plato and Aristotle we were doing Greek sculpture Um, Mm. I mean all of those at once they're all informing each other and our exams, you know, very self-consciously asked us to say, "What is it? what are the common threads that unify what's going on in the visual arts, the literary arts, philosophical inquiry, historical inquiry? Uh, so, I mean, my own education as an undergrad was definitely pointed towards understanding the broad sweep of the Western tradition. And I will say that, I mean, Milligan has a very strong commitment to what's now called multicultural learning, Uh, but the working assumption, and it's one that I've carried with me, you know, past my Milligan years, uh, the working assumption is that you really ought to have a strong basis in some sort of intelligible culture before you start looking at otherness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we believed in that whole Hegelian and later postmodern focus on the other uh, as... You know, a category that we should think about ethically and intellectually, uh, but we also believe that you know, in other, to, in order to think about the other intelligibly, uh, you had to have a sense of where you're coming from.
3: Yeah, you you can't take another's culture seriously if you don't take your culture seriously. I think. Anyway.
2: Well, Chris, uh, how, how do you see it playing out in the uh, in the CWC and at Bethel? And I. I
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd I'd echo what Nathan just said when David said that one CWC is kind of, it's a foundation course, really. It's something first-year students, like 70% of first-year students take. And then from that, they go on to take, for example, an in-depth study of Sub-Saharan African or Latin American culture. And it's the same ideas that most of our students come in from the West in some way, but they're, they're not used to doing any kind of critical study of it. They're not familiar with its history. They don't understand in a relationship of, you know, theology, philosophy, history, literature. Um, One thing I would point out, though, is that in some ways the great books model isn't quite what we do. And, And there's another class here called Western Humanities that's a lot more like what Nathan was talking about at Milligan. It's a four-semester sequence where you actually do read entire books. Um, in CWC, you barely read anything longer than three pages long. So yeah, for, for Plato, all you read is the Allegory of the Cave, and that's kind of where we stop. So I, <clears throat> I, I hope I don't disillusion you too much about the greatness
2: of CWC. Well, I'm um, uh, unsubscribing from that podcast right now. Yeah, I, I <laughs>
4: hesitate to bring this up, so take it up with Sam can explain right. why we do that. that
2: that's um, actually fairly it's also, it's similar p-
0: to Milligan, Chris, so okay. don't, don't okay. feel too bad. And at least and you
2: it, read... Uh, primary text in tfc's western thought and culture it was two weeks and all we read was francis um yeah
4: i mean i I, so i'd say we do we do kind of introduce students to the humanities especially to philosophy and theology within basically a western civ historical structure um and, and i'd say the way that it intersects with especially how I think Bethel thinks of Christian education distinctively, is um, the ideal of the great cloud of witnesses. Um, We do this the first day of class, we always do devotions, and the first thing we talk about is Hebrews 11, Talking about the stories of men and women of faith in the Old Testament and then Hebrews 12, 1, you know, since you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you know, run the race that's set before you. Um, and and the key there we we try to highlight is that this this points then to Jesus Christ. And and so I think the implicit idea we want to convince students of is that, you know, CWC is kind of filling in a a gap in the biblical narrative between the Old Testament, New Testaments, and then you know, end of times. That there's this continuing story of faithfulness, and the the different people, the different ideas, institutions, movements we're talking about, you know, are part then of a great cloud of witnesses. And and so the key there is that they're they're witnessing to Jesus Christ. You know, they they point you towards Christ, which um, you know, I I tend to say that that's the ultimate end of Christian education. You know, it's not really about learning Christian ideas or developing a Christian worldview. It's about you know, pointing you towards. You know, the Word. Uh, and so I mean, I, that, that's what I see as valuable, the idea of the humanities themselves can witness to Jesus Christ. Mm.
2: And I, um, I'm, I'd like to add that I, th- I think one of the values is that the, the great book's education goes a long way, or it should go a long way anyway, in keeping us from being locked into a, kind of a narrowly cultural perspective. And especially once you get past the New Testament, you get this image of what Christianity looked like in different cultures. And you see that even though they believed, in in some cases, very radically different things than we do, they were still Christians. So the great books education, especially when you look at it through theology, can broaden um, our horizons. And as far as the non-Christian stuff, Plato and Aristotle and who have you, um, it gives us a real idea of where the ideas we take as Westerners, the ideas we take as a priori truths, where they come from, and the work that had to be done in order to make them a priori. it gives us a chance to doubt them. Um, to interrogate them and then to decide if we should really take them as givens and figure out what the world will look like uh, if, if we don't do that. I, uh, I read an interview a couple weeks ago with Rick Steves, you know, that guy on PBS, the kind of uh, pleasant really guy who travels to Europe. Yep. <laughs> but it turns out he's, uh, he's an evangelical, and he said his biggest advice to other Christians was to travel because traveling is going to get you beyond a narrowly Americanist point of view about the world, and about Christianity, and I think you get something similar from a great books education, and it's a lot cheaper than traveling all over Europe. Yes. So, so, but uh, one of the dangers, I think, of the great books education, obviously it's it's not perfect because nothing's perfect. Um, I, I think the danger is it has the potential to cement us in our assumptions. So if we see that Aristotle assumed like um, some people still do today, that the world is fundamentally logical and can be understood as a series of uh, logical statements. Um, We might decide that because this has been believed for so long, there's no reason to question that. So it seems to me, and you guys can tell me what you think about this, a great book's education isn't worth much unless it asks more questions than it provides answers to.
0: Go ahead, David. Um...
4: (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leap in if you want. Um, yeah, I, I fundamentally agree. I mean, and, and I think one thing we try to highlight with CWC and intentionally try to disturb our students by is the idea that there is no single Christian answer to any of the questions we raise, that I mean, everything we raise starts a conversation that's, that's often um, fairly uncivil. Um, I mean, whether it's about faith faith and reason or it's about you know, political theology or about the good or aesthetics, whatever it is that, you know, I mean, we're not going to give you the answer, and you know the job here is not to match up with what Augustine believes or what Professor Garrett's believes, but it's it's to realize that there's I mean, hopefully a dialogue or a very heated discussion going on.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that that is one thing to one thing to, t- to to take into account is that a great books program or a you know the a, a Great Minds of Western Culture program is not going to produce single answers to, to these questions. Um, Aristotle will not be the only voice. Um, so, you, you, I, I, I think, Michael, that, you know, yeah, it will end up asking, I think students in that kind of program should end up asking lots of questions, but a lot of times those questions are going to be already asked and already argued about and what they're looking at. Um, I, I think one of, one of the disservices that uh, the uh, at least our discipline does to Western culture today is to treat it as this, you know, the West as this big kind of definable monoculture against which um, other cultures look so much more interesting.
2: Anyway. So I'm sure we'll get into this when we do our dedicated podcast.
0: Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it's almost as if you took all of that and said that there's a singular Greco-Roman narrative that you can point to, but that's, a, that's sort of an inside joke that only people who read and listen will get. So,
2: Take that Brian McLaren. <laughs> so really at the heart of what we're talking about here is a Christian theory of education. Um, and so maybe we should go back and go, go about defining, um, one of these theories, or, or several of these theories. So, what does the uh, what does the intersection of faith and education look like in your mind? And if we were opening, let's say, the long-promised Christian Humanist University, what would the coursework look like? And Chris, we'll take you on as a uh, visiting scholar, since I know you already have a job.
4: I'm on sabbatical. So. <laughs>
2: and uh, let's start with you, Nathan. All right. Well, I mean, you know, one of the
0: things that I think is a great resource is, you know, a a long habit of, of reading what we're referring to as the great books because a lot of the things that folks like Plato and Aristotle, Augustine, John Milton, all these folks want to talk about education because they realize that unlike animals, you know, who seem to know what it is to be a dog as soon as they are born a dog, uh, human beings have to be humanized. You know, that's why we have the humanities. Uh, so, I mean, I think that sort of the working assumption for any sort of Christian education, any sort of education really, uh, is that education has a certain power and we can certainly argue about what the limits of that power happen to be, but it has some kind of power to shape the actual existence of a human being. So one of the things that Chris talked about that I certainly agree with, uh, and David expanded on this is that. One of the things I would want to do in a, a Christian humanist university uh, would be to read books not that give answers that I agree with, but that ask questions that are more interesting than the questions I would normally ask. And, you know, that's, that's one reason why uh, in my own practice, in fact, starting this next fall, I'm going to be teaching Plato's Republic to, you know, these young evangelicals here at Emanuel College Uh, Not because I think they all ought to be Platonists, I don't, Uh, but because I think that Plato asked some questions that we've forgotten how to ask. Uh, So, I mean, I think that really across the disciplines, you know, one of the things that I really like about the science department here at Emmanuel College is that they are dedicated to some philosophical explorations. You know, they have their students write some bioethics papers. They have them write some theoretical papers on science. Our economics department has them explore you know, how do we look at economics as Christians? And, you know, really starting to take a step backwards and think about, all right, these are the assumptions that the discipline in its current state seems to make. Can we share those assumptions? Which ones do we need to call into question? Which ones do we think that the discipline itself isn't really taking seriously enough? Teaching our students to be askers of good and interesting questions ought to be at the core of this. I don't want to talk too much longer you know for fear that I'm gonna start rambling on for 40 minutes so David I mean what would you add to that?
3: I think one of the one of the things that we've mentioned so far about what was what was different about the community of the colleges that that we were part of uh, and that and that you're, uh, you're, you're at now Chris is the the involvement of of students and teachers, not as um, as instructors or as dispensers of knowledge or or as guides into a field of knowledge, but also of their uh, their integration as whole people, of of invite of inviting students um, into not just realms of realms of knowledge, but also into lives. Um, and I, I would see that as as part of what it means to integrate, uh, you know, to to integrate faith and learning. To be uh, to be a Christian who is educating is is to to talk about what what does it look like to be a whole person in which in which what we know and what we learn matters to how we live and how we treat others and how uh, not just thinking abstractly about the world and all of these kind of separate disciplines that have nothing to do with, you, with each other but you know, m- making, making whole people and I think the, uh, the relationship between teacher and student of opening up our lives as teachers to our students, letting them see how we live, um, I, th- I think that goes a long way towards, towards teaching um, the integration uh, by uh by kind of living it before them.
4: Yeah, and actually I mean the idea of whole persons is pretty yeah, that, that that has a lot of currency here. I mean a whole and holy persons is kind of the Bethel version of that. Um mm. and I think I mean to get back briefly to kinda of what I'm seeing as a Pietist model, I mean I, I think that's what's distinctive is the idea really is not that you learn information but that you're formed in some way. Um mm-hmm. And here, for kind of a non-Pietist version of this, I've really enjoyed reading uh, James K. Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, which mm-hmm. Smith is a reformed philosopher. teaches at Calvin, and he's talking about a lot of things, right. including—
2: Michael William and I are big fanboys of his. He, uh, he commented yeah, it, on uh, Nathan's blog once, and—
4: uh, Wow, that's exciting. Very, that's, very exciting. Yeah, it would be, but I mean, he's trying to make the argument that fundamentally, what Christian education is doing is, you know, forming the hearts of disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, mm-hmm. And he has some pretty harsh words, actually, for you know, schools like. I mean, Calvin and Bethel, I mean, we, he has this one great line about how we end up with a bunch of people who, you know, drive the same SUVs and go to the same malls, but they just say what we do with a Christian perspective instead, and I mean, he indicts this idea that, I mean, if you just are in the realm of the ideas, that you, you're not fundamentally changing people. Um, it's another idea that he has that, that I increasingly resonate with is to see the Christian college, um, much closer to the church than I think some Christian colleges do. Um, he has the analogy that the, the, what he calls an ecclesial university is like a chapel off the nave of a medieval cathedral. And the nave is actually the worshiping community. And then, but there's this all other, he thinks of it as worship going on in the Christian college. And the Pietist version of this, I would say, is is um, the Ecclesiola in Ecclesia. You know, Pietists are big on small groups and cell groups. And so they have this idea of little churches within the church. And so I sometimes think about the Pietist College as being this kind of little church within the larger church. And you know, at least for me, the most important thing that leads to is the idea that my primary identification is not with the academy, but with the church. And that what I'm doing in some ways is more about discipleship than kind of how moderns or postmoderns understand education. So, I mean, that's just something that I really have no great theory of, or I wouldn't know how to you know, institutionalize that in your Christian Humanist University but that's increasingly important.
2: (laughs) So all four of us have taught in some capacity or other at secular schools and the three of you are teaching at Christian schools right now. So what I'm interested in is the difference between the students at the two types of schools. So in other words, what sets students at Bethel and Emmanuel apart from students at UGA and Yale?
3: Well, obviously, and I've taught um, teaching at Emmanuel now, but also taught at uh, at Southeastern Bible College. After I graduated from there, I got my master's, and then in the the year off between masters and Ph.D., uh, they hired me as an adjunct. So I, I actually had in my own classes um, some people who had been incoming freshmen in the year that I graduated, which was which was really interesting. Um, I guess the first. The first difference that I see is, th- is that they're much more openly religious. Um, they feel safe that way. Um, I'm mostly uh, at, a, at UGA and uh, I find out that a student has a religious affiliation when they choose that topic for a biographical essay or when they ask for uh, an excused absence because of a religious holiday. Other than that, I really don't know any any student's life. Other, you know, as that it's different from any others. All I see of them is what what they do for class, what they bring to the class, um, their work. Um, so so in that way, uh, I think this this the secular university in in some ways encourages students who have a faith commitment to uh, to kind of. S- keep keep that in a in a in a private sector of their life
2: to put to their not, candle under the bushel david
3: uh yeah well yeah. and 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 to to lie low because they don't know what the reaction is going to be at a christian college obviously they're more um they're they're braver about that and also that that leads to different different kinds of discussions um i feel much freer at uh at a manual to have conversations about um, issues of morality because uh, I feel that I have a basis upon which to talk about it. Um, any any discussion of morality that I have in a UGA class uh, consists largely of what questions do we draw out of the text and then I kind of leave the, leave the answers to the student. Um, and one other thing that occurred to me uh, this morning, as I was thinking about this question, is that in the Christian colleges, um, the students that I encounter seem to have mu- a much greater sense of mission for their lives—that they have a notion of what what it is that they're supposed to do, and that they're pursuing it. Maybe it's maybe that's just because I get to see more of what's going on in their lives, but um, uh, the students. My, my my students at Emmanuel s- seem to have a much clearer notion of of where the of where they want to go, um, than the ones at UGA. But maybe maybe that's just because I've got a one sample of students that talks to me and then and another that doesn't.
2: <laughs> Chris, what about you? What 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 differences do you notice between uh, the students at Yale and Bethel?
4: Yeah, I mean, beyond everything that David said, which I hardly agree with. Um, I mean I would say the one the obvious thing, I think students here are much more politically conservative. And Yale actually for the Ivy League is somewhat conservative, but I mean here it's it's rare to encounter someone who identifies as a Democrat or liberal. Um, but that said I I think they're not not necessarily dogmatic about it. And I think especially by the time they're juniors or seniors, um, whether it's their politics or their theology, they're they're able to um, view it from some critical distance. Um To actually listen to other perspectives, Um, in some ways better than some of the students I met at Yale. Um, I think the one thing that frustrates me, I guess, about a Christian college, or at least Bethel, um, as opposed to Yale, is what one of my colleagues calls the lack of an intellectual subculture here. Um, one of the stated reasons originally for doing the CWC podcast is we wanted to try to draw out some of those students to make them feel that it's all right to love studying philosophy or politics or history simply for the love of it um, and not for the grade or for the curricular obligation. Um, and that, that's still, I'd say, fairly unusual here. And and uh, instead, I think partly because there's a strong sense of mission, it's, it's often, though, defined in terms of or at least you're most vocal about it if it's a mission for the church. You know, if you're gonna be a pastor or a missionary, you're doing some ministry of some kind. And mm-hmm. I almost wonder some people, me outside of that, almost I feel like sometimes they're kind of apologetic, they're not doing that, or they, mm-hmm. I mean, that's where they need to lie low a little bit. Um, I, I think that's something we, we sometimes struggle with here. Um, I'd say the other thing I would um, identify, I, I certainly feel much freer. Talk. I mean I feel like I'm a much better teacher because I'm at a Christian college because I mean I can really be transparent uh, about just about anything I mean whereas at Yale I felt like I was constantly censoring myself you know that there were certain aspects of my person that were inappropriate to talk about because it would seem like I was proselytizing or, or something and at Bethel I'm free you know really to to I think bring myself entirely. And that includes my doubts. And that's one thing that surprised me about coming to an evangelical school. You know, when I first kind of having no knowledge started looking at them, I would, I think I basically equated them with fundamentalists in some sense and didn't have, uh, and wasn't quite sure you know, how they would deal with theological difference or, you know, how long their list of essentials versus Adiaphora would be. Um, I'm actually surprised how well, um, our students learn to to doubt faithfully again especially by the time they're juniors and seniors and how they're able to live with um, people who disagree with them profoundly and 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 that's something that strikes me about at least this Christian college
0: Nathan how about you? you? well I mean one thing that, that immediately occurred to me when I started teaching here rather than at UGA was and this is something that was invisible to me because it was all I knew for a few years, uh, was that there's such a sense of entitlement over at the University of Georgia, and I was basically a hurdle over which the students needed to step so that they could get to their weekend parties uh, and so that eventually they could get their UGA diploma and get their middle class jobs and raise children who would grow up to be 18 and drink for four years and then perpetuate the aristocracy (laughs) here at Emanuel on the other hand first of all part of our mission is to bring people into college who normally wouldn't be able to go so we've got a lot of students and frankly a lot of teachers who see that a lot of the folks in our classrooms are underprepared frankly that's part of what invigorates me uh, the fact that we are not just perpetuating a cycle but that we are bringing people in who didn't have that opportunity before the other thing I would say, and the, and, the, and this is piggybacking off of what Chris and David said, is that our student body as a group has a sense of mission that really fills in that negative space that usually gets taken up by entitlement. And I think that you know the conversations that I have with my students tend to be more substantive. Uh, they tend to be more geared towards really what I would consider significant life questions rather than mainly being about grades and such. Now I I will openly grant and I'll grant it up front that there is a certain segment of students here at Emanuel College who are here because they couldn't get into the University of Georgia uh, who resent the fact that they're not at the University of Georgia. But I would say that even granting that segment of the population just the atmosphere in the classroom is just very, very different here. Simply because I can tell these students, you know, we are loving the Lord with our whole minds, and they believe it, uh, and I believe it. By the way, I'm not just mm. doing that to make them do their homework. Um, <laughs> you know, so just I just partially
2: I think, to make them do their homework. <laughs> well, you
0: know, I I am mercenary that way, but you know, I think that that sense of mission is the the primary thing that sets the two experiences apart for me. Can you know, that, I say
2: one? En- that entitlement thing uh, hits home. I-, I talk about my wife too much on this podcast, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, what sold her finally on on the idea of teaching at a Christian college instead of a secular school is when she just couldn't take uh, the kids with entitlement anymore. And I told her that they don't really exist as much at Christian colleges. Um, I think I think that's really what sold her. Um, and actually, this will. My story about Victoria will actually move us into the uh, next topic because today, um, if you're listening to this, the day it's recorded is St. Patrick's Day. Um, My wife teaches a 9 a.m. English class, and she's worried about students showing up drunk because it's St. Patrick's Day. So that that brings us to the topic of in loco. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Somebody say something. Uh it brings us to the topic of in loco parentis. Um when I was at CFC one of the one of the major bones of contention between the students and the administration was this notion that the university was supposed to function in loco parentis or in place of the parents. Um, so we had an early curfew, and you know, we couldn't smoke or drink, and there were a lot of Baroque rules about intergender physical contact. The three-second rule was a, a rumor, although I don't think it was ever codified that much. Anyway, <laughs> what, uh, what are your observations and opinions on the eff- efficacy of uh, practices like, like this? To what degree is the Christian College obligated to act in loco parentis? And uh, Chris, we'll start with you, since you've uh, had, had the uh, most uh, professorial experience acting in loco parentis.
4: Well, that's funny because I don't feel like I ever have to, um, but that's definitely a part of the Bethel culture. Um, we have what we call our covenant for life together, which they go as far as they can to make it clear that it's not meant to be a law book. and It's not meant to be legalistic, but because it does talk about, um, essentially it's a value statement about stewardship, creativity, beauty, the imago dei, dignity, things like that. But it also does talk about I mean, prohibitions against gambling, smoking, drinking, Mean um, um, certain kinds of sexuality, um, and, and I, th- I think that's a basic tension you know, that I struggle with with the Pietist College. You know, on the one hand, Pietists tend to have a pretty high view of freedom. I mean, since you know, coerced belief is no belief at all, and I mean, it just leads to dead orthodoxy. But at the same time, they also tend to be kind of in the holiness stream of things, um, and, and, and tend to stress orthopraxis and you know, right right living or right behavior, um, at least as much as orthodoxy. So I mean, it's something Bethel I think has long struggled with. You know, reading like reports from the 60s and 70s, you know, you, you see these these administrators struggling with kind of changing student culture, and you know, they don't want to see themselves as a third but they also can't be permissive. And so back then that would have meant prohibitions against dancing. Um, the joke here is that among Baptists is that you don't want to have people engaged in, in sex because it might lead to dancing. Um, and so that, that went away <laughs> a few years. I think that stopped here at Bethel maybe two years before I came. So that, that took a long time to shake. Um,
0: it's still the case at Milligan and we still tell that joke.
4: Okay, go ahead. Uh, Facial
2: hair was against the rules at TFC until my second semester there
3: there was a there was a strange rule about that at southeastern too when I first got it, got there but it was you could have facial hair if you showed up with it but you couldn't grow a beard during the semester because it would require intervening weeks of improper scruffiness. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That
4: I have to say, My wife would say that's actually true. Whenever I try to grow a beard, there's the intervening weeks, stretch into intervening months and years, and, and so I would never inflict that.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm just imagining the the school catalog that has the phrase <laughs> "intervening weeks of scruffiness."
2: I yeah, may- that that
3: yeah, that wasn't in the handbook, but that was that was actually the logic behind the rule. I'm sorry, finally- Chris. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. So, I mean, I I
4: think what we struggle with is. I mean, everyone signed. So faculty signed this, and the only different re- difference recently is that we faculty are now allowed to drink off campus. But that was only a couple years ago. So um, here we come. Yeah, it's a party school, <laughs> kind of like Arizona State's North, I guess. Now um, you just
2: got to worry about the faculty showing up drunk on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>
4: well, we're in spring break, so it's it's kind of a mood point today. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I think what we struggle with is you know how to we kind of convinced this is not a rule book even though you know there are rules that they can break and they do face you know loving disciplinary action I mean, and as faculty I think we I think tend to simply ignore it as much as possible I don't think that's the right move but you know I've you know, I live close to here I live five minutes from here so my wife and I go out to eat and we run into Bethel students and I've definitely been in a restaurant where I see a Bethel student drinking and so I struggle with you know what's my Role? Am I supposed to talk to them? Do I report them? And usually I just do nothing, so I, I never feel like I'm acting as their parent. But you know, someone here, probably in the student life office, um, probably gets gets stuck with that. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, a, a thing that I, I mean, looking at kind of the history of Pietism and education, I recognize that there are legalistic strands here, like like Franca, the kind of head of the University of Halle is this idea that one of the chief roles of professors is to serve as a moral exemplar for students. And he actually has a laundry list of kind of um, right behaviors they're supposed to engage in or refrain from. And um, I'm terrified by that idea. I, I can't imagine my students looking to me as a moral exemplar. Um, but they do. It's a cautionary example. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I talk <laughs> about that. You know, to the extent that I think it's appropriate, I do kind of talk about what I struggle with. Um, but I, I certainly don't see myself as a disciplinarian.
2: Nathan, what about you? Uh, what do you think of In Loco Parentis?
0: <clears throat> well, first of all, I mean, the situation here at Emmanuel is very similar. I mean, that's largely the province of the Student Life Department. Uh, so we really sort of comp- compartmentalize that. You know, I mean, the the extent to which I've been involved in acting in that role is, you know, I get an email that says, you know, send this or that student to Student Life after your class today. Uh, so, I mean, I. It is an uncomfortable thing, I'll I'll admit. Now, on the other hand, I have read, and I believe the name of the book is The Abandoned Generation. Uh, It's co-written by Will Willimon, who's a Methodist bishop uh, and former Duke uh, Divinity School professor uh, and an economics professor whose name I've entirely forgotten. Uh, But the argument that they present is that colleges should and can, they're within their rights to bar students from certain ways of life that don't contribute to learning. Mm-hmm. And it's an argument that when I read it, you know, I, I, I started struggling with it and I haven't stopped struggling with it since. But what they said is, you know, uh, going out on Thursday night and drinking so much that you're incapacitated when you're supposed to be engaged in class on Friday, which is, by the way, uh, simply the way of life in Athens, Georgia. Uh, <laughs> in
2: Tallahassee, Florida.
0: Okay, in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, so we, have, I, I think it might be a trend in the South anyway. Uh, but, you know, I think that that argument is compelling on some level, uh, but, again, because I, I do try to think of my students as adults, or at least as tadpoles trying to become adults, uh, I am somewhat uncomfortable with the school acting in any sort of authoritative way to prohibit such things. So, I mean, I'll I'll admit, I mean, I, you know, my own thoughts on that are defined entirely by inner conflict. Hmm. David, what do you think?
3: This is, this was actually a really interesting question to me because while I was at Southeastern, um, I sort of ended up being part of the SGA. And at, at a point in time where the the school was transitioning from very very culturally conservative, um, a very culturally conservative school that was very focused on producing students who were going to go into big M ministry, transitioning from that to a uh, a private Christian liberal arts college that was less focused on vocational ministry and less focused on. Very clean cut, um, I, I, I guess, kind of, kind of old, old South church properness. And one of the th- one of the big arguments that we frequently had because we and we were fighting with uh, the dean of students and the the office of student affairs or whatever it was, one of the things that we were very frequently having to to discuss was. On what basis was the authority of the school uh, to be seen? Were they functioning in loco parentis? Were they functioning in loco ecclesia, or was it simply an institution that was, you know, or, or was it simply a school that was giving rules that had, you know, purely pragmatic reasons? Um, because depending on the conversation, we would get, we would get you know the rule would be you know a rule that we would be contending with would be defended on one basis and then it would be defended on another and then on another and one of the continuing conversations that we had was not the what are the specific rules but where is the Christian College standing when it makes rules is it functioning as uh, like you said Chris is its functioning as a church within the church and is the Dean of Students our pastor is the Dean of Students our surrogate father who's being our parents when our parents aren't there or is this simply um an institution that's making rules not laws because of the the practical consequences of those laws not because of the morality of them and uh i, I don't know if that conversation continues but that was uh that was how things got framed at southeastern um what you know they both students and the and the, the institution agreed that some kind of rule needed to exist. The argument was, on what basis, did the authority to make rules and enforce rules uh, set upon? I guess. Anyway, so we, we had we put on our powdered wigs and we you know got all founding father <laughs> on them.
2: All right, well, uh, we're rapidly running out of time. That's maybe end up being our longest episode ever, but that's okay. We have four panelists today. So uh, let's end with our, our usual takeaway question. And in this case, that's going to be something like, why are Christian colleges a sound investment and or uh, what do we envision as their future? So uh, answer one or both of those questions, Nathan.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I, I and I should have looked this up before the episode, but uh, it was either Patrick Deneen's personal blog or it was Front Porch Republic which is a blog to which he contributes, but it's one of those intellectual conservative websites that we were talking about a couple weeks ago, recently ran an essay talking about the price of college versus the cost of college. And one of the things that they were arguing is that what departments of admissions have been going out of their way to do is to render college an investment rather than a commitment. And, you know, while they, kept jacking up the price of college they kept insisting that it would result in some sort of commensurate income increase over the next 30 years so that at the end of things there wouldn't be any actual cost to the human being and I think that that's one of those things that on one hand you know obviously I'm one of the lucky fools who got a professor job so you know I can sit here and wax eloquent (laughs) about, you know, how an education ought to cost you something as a human being. But I think there's some truth to that as well. And I mean, I I guess if I were going to say, you know, what do I see as the future of Christian education? I would say that, you know, one of the things that was, that has been emphasized to a greater or lesser degree over the course of the last 150 years is the idea that going to a Christian college, whether you're going to be an ordained pastor type, big M ministry, as David called it, or not, uh, you are going there sacrificing something of yourself for the service of the church. And I think that if we're going to continue to invite students to become part of our communities at least among the Christians, we need to emphasize that. Now on the other, other side of that coin, I realize I'm talking more than I should here, but on the other side of that coin, and I can talk about this guy cause I don't think he's ever going to listen to this, but one of my students right now, uh, Sebastian, uh, who has told me in private conversations, you know, he's not a Christian. Uh, he came here to take a few core classes. He's planning on transferring out. Uh, but we had a really good conversation about the concept of hospitality And I think that that is the other side of the future of Christian colleges, is that we need to invite people in uh, who don't yet confess Christ and who might never confess Christ. We ought to continue to confess Christ in what we do. We ought to continue to pursue a distinctively Christian life of the mind. Uh, But we ought to be ready and willing and eager to invite people in and say, here, come live with us for a while study with us, ask questions with us, we want to hear your answers, we want you to challenge us, Uh, please be part of our community, even though at the moment you don't confess the same king that we confess. So, you know, those two sides of it, sacrifice and hospitality, are what I see as the future of the Christian college. I think
2: you Uh, may have opened up the door for an entirely different episode there, Nathan, with that last comment. I, I have a feeling we could talk about that for several hours. Oh, I could certainly. <laughs> David, what do you think?
3: Um I th- I think well well this this is something interesting to me. Um having my foot in in both worlds at the moment. Um a lot of state schools at the moment are suffering because of state budgets. Um I'm wondering if the same kind of thing is affecting private schools. Um to the same degree naturally when there's uh when there's economic uh unrest uh, you know all 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 luxury investments like higher education are going to see some kind of a downturn but uh I, I do think it's interesting at least that the Christian college because it is because it is private is not so tied to the the vacillations of uh Go- of government finance, um, that uh, that the state institutions are. I, th- I a just think that's, there. I think, yeah, I, I just think that's interesting um, at, at the moment. But are they a sound investment? I, th- I think they absolutely are, and it's because uh, as our culture gets more fragmented, whole people are going to become more important. Um, the, the further our culture fragments, the further the people in it become not just not just different ethnicities, but but even micro cultures. you know the, you know the culture of the people who followed that one YouTube uh, blog channel, you know, the, the further the further our culture gets divided up, the more whole people are going to be able to be salt and light in it and i think that the christian college can play a big role in in enabling um christendom to be that light to be whole people who who live all of their life without compartmentalizing it in in a world that's just becoming more and more compartmentalized i see that as a strength and i only see it as getting stronger so chris
4: what do you think yeah i mean those are Wow, that, that's fantastic. I mean, the, the one thing I'd add to the investment question would be um, that I do feel like it's a place not only where we cultivate whole people, but where you can get a, you have some time to to really listen for your calling. Um, a piece that I often give my seniors when I teach senior some is a sermon by Frederick Buechner, the kind of pastor novelist where he talks about Isaiah's call. And... Mm-hmm. He says, ultimately, his conclusion is you should do whatever makes you most glad and what lets you serve others. But what he's really talking about is how do you sift out all the different voices in your life, you know, from whether it's actual people or from the culture. And I wonder if the Christian college especially is in a place... To give people four years in which to do some of that sifting and some of that some of that active listening for their calling. Um, not to say that a lot of our history majors immediately find their career coming out of Bethel, but I think that is one thing we can contribute. Um, actually, the what do we envision is their future? I don't know if I have an answer. I know one thing that I'm struggling with, I know we're gonna keep struggling with, is what place does online education have in that culture in, in that future. Um there's another episode. because I know that's something we're all interested <laughs> in, otherwise we wouldn't be doing a podcast. Um certainly it's you know something Sam and I are interested in because we do podcasts tied to our classes, but I think we're also um I think maybe surprisingly hesitant about going too far into online education. And you know, there are Christian colleges that have really done well here, like Indiana Wesleyan is one of the frequently gets held up here at Bethel because it was a school that had some real um, financial hard times and it invested not just in different campuses but an online um, model that let it you know, bring in some revenue that it could use to invest in its day college and to really um, invest in some resources there. And so I know there's, there's a huge temptation here at Bethel um, and an institutional mandate in some ways to you know, bulk up our online presence. And I'm really excited by kind of possibilities of doing like what we're doing right now. I mean, we obviously I mean, we're, we're, spanning great, um, great space here in order to have a great conversation. But I mean, it, if there's something about the college I as mean, an embodied community, you know, in which one life can affect another. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't know how that happens in online education and I don't have much personal experience of it. So maybe it can happen, but it, it seems like something we should be wary of. I'm, I'm a little concerned about, at least for Bethel.
2: All right. Well, um, that's our episode for today. Uh, thank you so much, Chris Garrett's for coming on and talking to us. Thank you, Chris. Thanks Thanks for having me guys. And you're welcome. Um, on anytime you want, of course, um, David, what are we talking about next week?
3: Well, um, I scrambled around frantically for a subject because this, my, my, my week always sneaks up on me. Um, like a lion in the tall grass. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think maybe more interested than, than, than you guys in uh, genre fiction. And when we were looking at uh, sort of the the big three, the big three of literature, the the tragedies, the comedies, uh, the epics in film, um, I kept thinking about, well, what about the movies that don't fit in there? What about the books that don't fit? Uh, we've already talked about science fiction, and fantasy. It was one of our early episodes. Um, Next week, I think I want to delve a bit into horror and uh, see what comes out of that.
2: Uh, sounds like a terrifying good time. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, you can get in touch with us at the thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can go read our blog or show notes for this episode and any other at uh, christianhumanist.org. In, uh, in the meantime, uh, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, David Grubbs, and Chris Garrett saying... Thanks. Let your sins be strong, and let your faith be stronger.
1: The straw runs down his almond lake. under the carpet out to the keg. A secret party tonight at Point Loma. And the hate in your heart, you're hiding well, but the booze on your breath is easy to smell. She had a beer as an evening snack When the scripture man planned a sneak attack Suspension's the buzz out at Wheaton As she packed her bags and gathered her books scripture man gave her that lustful look Yes, lust is his brew But no one sees through His minty, fresh breath ain't reeking When the coast is clear you can kiss me dear Where up here, the past is here, but they are